First part of this year, I had us uh, saying some verses at the end of the scripture, at the end of the sermon. And those scriptures were designed to help us focus on the need to reach our community for Christ and to pray for those to go out in the community to do the work. And that was Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And the key thought that typically stands out is, the fields are white for harvest, Lord, send workers for the harvest. But the one that stood out to me every Sunday, and I spoke to it on occasion, was verse 36. That one just, just really resonated with me. And it says, when he, meaning Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Just the love of Jesus Christ that exudes, that as he observed the crowds that were following him, he had compassion. In his form, and Jesus felt the emotions that we feel, and as God, he would have been justified with many emotions. He could have been angry and he was angry at times. He cleared the temple with that uh, whip that he made when he saw the people being oppressed and taken advantage of. His heart broke when a dear friend died, and he arrived for that. He expressed tenderness to the children that the disciples tried to keep from him. Jesus involved all those emotions, and instead of being compassionate towards people, he could have been angry with us because all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us have gone, every man to his own way. But that verse tells us he saw the people. And it was striking to me last night, Sue and I watched that second Avatar movie, The Way of Water, I think it's subtitled. And one of the ways they would greet people in, in, a, in a special way was to say, I see you. And that's a simple phrase, but how many times do we go through life, do we go through our day thinking we're invisible to people, that they don't know we're around, that they don't know that we exist, they don't know that we're hurting sometimes? And so Jesus saw the people. And that brings the point always, do we see the people around us that we come in contact with each day? Do we just go through our motions at work or at play, saying hi, how you doing, but not really seeing the people, not being sensitive to what's going on? Jesus saw the people, but he also saw their condition. He saw what their lives were like. He saw that they were harassed and helpless, and he saw their true condition, and because of that, he had compassion on them. I'm sure Jesus had sympathy. Sympathy is defined as having pity for another person's misfortune. Sue will often tell people, my Sue, there's three of them sitting in here, my Sue will often tell people when they tell her about something going on, I'm sorry, and they'll say, oh, it's not your fault. And then Sue will typically explain that in growing up in Kenya, she learned a phrase, polisana, that means 
I am sorry you're having this trouble. Not, I, not the meaning, I'm sorry I did this to you, but I'm sorry you're experiencing this. And that's how sympathy can be. I'm sure Jesus felt empathy because he grew as a child and did those struggles. He knew the challenges people had, and empathy is defined as the ability to feel and understand those that other people encounter. We can really connect with them. Jesus was angered at the apathy of those who were in a position to help the people but weren't. Apathy is defined as a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. But Matthew 9.36 tells us Jesus had compassion on the people. Miriam Wester defines compassion as sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. So compassion goes beyond just, I'm sorry you're going through this. But it goes on to say, how can I help? Or even without asking, doing that which helps the others. Sometimes it's listening. A lot of times that's all we need. Just to know somebody sees us and is listening, understands that we're there and we're hurting. Sometimes it is providing actual help in some way. But regardless, compassion has a cost. Whether it is fiscal, physical, or chronological, whether meaning that it requires money sometimes, giving of money, means active work, going and doing something to actually help them, or maybe the most valuable commodity, time. Time just to sit, not talk maybe, listen, maybe not even listen, just to be there. Time to pitch in and wash the dishes or clean the house, whatever. But that's what compassion is. And so that's where this idea of the sermon title, Tough Love, comes from. Matthew 9.35 tells us Jesus healed the people's diseases and sickness. So he took care of and he alleviated their immediate discomfort. Of course, that brought happiness to the people, not to hurt anymore, not to limp anymore, not to be able to use their arms again. We read other stories of Jesus feeding them. The feeding of the 5,000 stands out where Jesus saw the people and knew they were tired from listening all day to his lessons. And so he asked the disciples first. He said, we have all these people here. And he said, what are you going to do? And they reacted logically. We don't have enough time or money. We don't have enough to provide for all the people. And then Jesus took the five loaves and two fishes and multiplied them, fed everyone. Jesus can meet the needs that exist as we trust. I'm sure those people were happy to have their stomachs full. Maybe some of them had been hungry for a long time, but that day they got a full meal. And that's part of what we hope to do with our meals on uh, this past week on each night at 6 o'clock. We don't know the children that may not have had something good to eat that day. 
and, and really relished the meal. So Jesus practiced that. He practiced what they, he preached. He gave them joy and long-lasting relief. But he went deeper than that. Let's read our passage now, Matthew 5, 27 through 32. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a woman so divorced commits adultery. Join me in prayer. Our precious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word first. But thank you for your compassion. Thank you that each one of us can know when we're feeling alone, when we're feeling like nobody sees us, no one cares, that we have a God who is with us, a God who cares, and a God who's waiting to listen. And beyond that, a God who can answer every need. So we thank you, Lord, for being that kind of a God. And it's in Jesus' name that we thank you and pray. Amen. On this passage, once again, Jesus begins with one of the Ten Commandments, in this case, the Seventh Commandment, which says, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is that voluntary, intimate relationship between a married person with someone who is not their spouse, as opposed to fornication, which is an intimate relationship between people who are not married to each other. Jesus, as he did with you shall not murder, extends and deepens the teaching of this commandment. He goes on to say that if you have lustful feelings towards another person, that you have committed adultery in your heart. Jesus does this constantly through his teaching, taking it from this active state of killing somebody, murdering them, or committing adultery to an attitude of the heart. And we know from 1 Samuel 16, 7, where that verse is, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Of course, God sees our outward appearance. He knows what's going on with us in that way. But what strikes him and what he focuses on is the heart. We can dress up and look wonderful and be broken inside. We can act calm and peaceful, but be seething with anger. And God sees that. He helps. He hears. It's important for us to have friends. We're relational people. Relational to varying degrees. Some people need people around them more than others. We have introverts and extroverts and uh, everything in between. 
But it's important that we have friends. Friends with whom we gather for enjoyment, work, and worship. We need other people with whom we interact. Our pets can help us in our loneliness, but we need people. I don't know how many times I've heard my daughter say, and other young women, young mothers say, they crave some adult time. They love their children. The children are so special, and they can be so sweet and so devilish. But we crave some adult conversation, some adult thinking. And I know men seek buddies to fish with and hunt and do other activities. And I know that even some of you here tell me about going up to a particular place, whether it's the restaurant in town or the quick place to have some coffee with the other men in the morning, enjoying that time of togetherness with other adults. Relationships are important to us, including, and perhaps more importantly, a life partner to spend every day with. A person we come home to and with whom we share about our day and vent our frustrations and with whom we trust in intimacy. But our lust drives a wedge in that relationship. And if nurtured, ultimately destroys not only that relationship, but all trust from the other individual. The family can be ripped asunder and extended relationships destroyed or damaged. God established the family to propagate the world, but also to be a means by which we teach and transfer godly values to the next generation. When we do not have a close relationship with God and we do not worship Him as He commands, we cannot pass on those values to our children. And when we act in such a way as to destroy our home life, and bring horrible tension to our homes, we teach our children the wrong values. Jesus illustrates just how damaging this adultery and lust can be by the remedy he proposes. He says that whatever part is causing the offense, cut it off, be rid of it. Gouge out your eye if that's what's causing the problem, and that's a severe remedy and most scholars believe this teaching is a teaching using hyperbole, in other words, exaggeration to make a point, in order to emphasize just how grave and serious the sin of adultery is, whether it's in fact or imagined through the eyes and heart. It's a serious problem, and God's remedy for that is that severe that it's better he says to be rid of that than to lose or not have your salvation and be cast into hell it's a serious thing we should also take a moment to define lust lust is an inordinate desire for someone or something that drives us to want to obtain the object of our lust so it can be an individual that we just set our eyes on that we must have, must have a relationship with, 
Or it can be, and I'm, I'm going to meddle now, it can be that great fishing boat that we just know we'd catch tons more fish if we had, or that big Ford F-150 or F-450 with dual rear wheels and big loud diesel exhaust. If we pursue those, those aren't bad things, but if we pursue them and take away from our responsibilities, then it becomes a problem. That's lust. It is out of control admiration, and if left unchecked, it drives us to do whatever we must do to obtain what we desire. We can lust after importance, prominence, and position. And in the quest of that, fulfilling that lust, we can try to destroy other people, destroy their reputation, belittle them, and make them seem less, not because they are, but in an effort to build ourselves up. So this brings us to the next section of our passage, the section addressing divorce. Divorce in the ancient Hebrew culture was seen as theft. It was stealing something, in this case someone, that does not belong to you. This typically involved adultery, and so it fits that Jesus connected these two lessons. Divorce has many root causes, but too often it is desiring another or wanting to be desired. It can be driven from lust from someone who has caught our eye, or it can be lust for the attention of another. Jesus referred to a certificate of divorce. It's an unfortunate fact that in Jesus' time and before and many years after, women were completely had to be dependent on a male person if they were to have food and shelter. Today we can be repulsed by this situation. And in our day, a woman has more opportunity to care and provide for themselves. But that certainly hadn't always been the case. As a matter of fact, it's a rather recent development. Really probably started happening around World War II when so many men had to go to war. I remember there's been a lot in the news today about the Titanic with that sub, that tourist sub that went down and the tragedy that ensued there. But if you remember from the movie uh, uh, Titanic, the mom who was trying to groom her daughter to be married to this wealthy man and, and her uh, frustration and anger with her daughter when she wanted more independence and freedom and didn't want to have to play that game. That was the case. And it's important for us to realize that that doesn't mean that's what God wanted. It doesn't mean God condoned women being treated as property or condones it today. It doesn't mean that's His desire, but that's where our Bible, and one reason we can trust it, is because it doesn't gloss over the ugly part of life. It tells us, it shows us how people, how they really are. But it also teaches us God's desire, what God would want. He doesn't condone that kind of activity. And in Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16, God makes it clear He hates divorce. 
he characterized it as violence against the one being divorced. And one primary reason for this is the dependence of the woman on the man. And so if she's divorced, she's kicked out in the world to fend for herself and perhaps her children with her. And too often, this was done capriciously just because the man grew tired or just because his supper wasn't hot with no reason. And so the woman was unjustly and unfairly kicked out. Again, God's not condoning divorce. Rather, he's seeking to protect those hurt by it. And so he led them to establish this law, the certificate of a divorce, that it could not be practiced capriciously, as I said, or wantonly, but it had to protect and take care of that person. What's really important here is that God hates that a relationship has been destroyed. I think at our core, every one of us would desire that a marriage is always good, that always lasts, that is enriching to the children and enriching to others. Who would want to go into a situation determined to destroy it and determined to just maintain it for a short time? He hates that relationship. He hates the impact that it has on the people involved. He hates that children born as a result of marriage now don't have that calm home, that nurturing home. And it's important to note that he hates the practice, but he doesn't hate the divorcee. He doesn't hate those who have gone through it. In fact, even the adulterer, God doesn't hate. He does hate that sin. He does grieve over it, but he still loves each and every person and desires that they come back to him, that they follow his way. And that's what Jesus is trying to bring about in these passages. He's trying to teach the people how they can avoid those situations He's trying to teach them, in this case, to check that lustfulness before it begins. To, it's, not, it's, it's not unusual. It's, it's typical for us to admire another person. She's a nice-looking woman. He's a handsome man. He dresses well. He really takes care and is kind towards others. She's so nurturing and loving. Those are points of admiration that are natural. But it's when they turn into that inordinate desire that we need to check ourselves. We need to watch. We need to ask the Lord to strengthen us and keep us through it. And so Jesus is giving this teaching, trying ahead of time to forestall, to prevent some of this occurring in the people's lives. Instead of just glossing over and and taking care of the day-to-day stuff, healing their diseases, feeding them, Jesus goes to that root heart and tries to clear that, tries to fix that, tries to turn it to the way it's of God so that the people don't have to later be healed from the ravages of being in an adulterous relationship or experiencing that to avoid 
that they don't have to endure the pain and, and heartache of, of separation from anyone or through divorce. And so Jesus practices this tough love, this love that people don't really want to hear, that their actions are against God, that their actions hurt other people, and they need to change them and yield them and bring them under the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And so God, uh, Jesus specifically, isn't trying to just be popular with everybody, to be loved and liked by everybody, but he has that compassion where he says, this is a problem and you need to address it. A person could say, well, I've never committed adultery, and that's good. But can they say, I've never lusted? That's rare. And Jesus is dealing with those fine issues in their lives and in our lives. He practiced that tough love by addressing the root behaviors that bring us to trouble. He calls out the wrong attitudes that assail us. He teaches us the right way, and He commands us to leave the wrong ways. But He leaves us to choose the natural way of our flesh or the spiritual way of God. He provides the instruction. He provides the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that can enable us to resist temptation. He promises us a reward of the Father's spiritual blessings and practical blessings. But we have to make the choice and exercise the discipline to obey His words and trust in His promises. In the book of Joshua, at the end of the book, Joshua has successfully led the next generation into the Canaan land, the promised land as we called it. They've all but conquered it. God has seen them through. Joshua's near the end of his days and he has a speech to the people. Joshua 24 is the chapter. In it he says, he recounts to them all that God has done. But then he leaves them with that challenge. You see, they had a choice too. He leaves them with that challenge. God's done all of this for you, but if it seems better, to worship the gods of the people of this land rather than him, choose ye this day whom ye will serve. And so as you listen to these words, as you see our society, as you see the different lifestyles, choose ye this day whom ye will serve, whether it's the, uh, the wantonness, the, the, the way of our world, of every man for himself, take care of me, do for me, or whether it's yielding to God and following His instructions, choose ye this day whom ye will serve. He's offered you salvation from your penalty of sin with its death sentence. Once accepted, He then commands to follow Him, to obey Him, believing two things, knowing one, what He's done for you, and then believing what He's promised for you. If you look at those and compare them to the world, 
Jesus says through Joshua 1st and 24:15, but on and on, he leaves it up to you. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. And then your challenge to live it with integrity. It doesn't matter if you come forward and let us see or hear that you've made this decision. It matters what you do in your life out there. It matters how you comport yourself to those around you, but that's what the Father's looking at, what's in here, not how good you look on Sunday. So as we stand to sing, that's the challenge. God knows the reasons, the happenings in your life. It's not ours to uh, judge, condemn, make an evaluation. He loves you in a love that we can't imagine. He wants you to ask forgiveness for whatever He lays on your heart. Again, that's between you and Him. Ask forgiveness and then say, Lord, help me to resist. Let's stand and sing as Mark.